Hello, welcome to the West Side Podcast. This is where we'll post some of our audio from our sermons on Sunday, and we're so glad that you're here. West Side's vision is to reconcile people to God through the grace of Jesus step by step. We hope you enjoy, and thanks for tuning in. We continue on in Genesis this week. Um, this is going to be my uh, um, my last week for uh, for a little bit. Then uh, we'll have two others uh, coming uh, over these next couple of weeks. I'm very excited for you to get to hear uh, from a couple of uh, guest speakers, and I know that you will be uh, blessed by them as um, as we continue along the the Genesis story uh, with them. Um, but uh, also be around these the next couple of weeks. You're even going to have to hear me sing one of those weeks. So, uh, so maybe come just uh, to take notes and see what you th- what, uh, what it is you uh, think about that. <laughs> Genesis eleven through twelve, um, we get to the end of one section and the beginning of another. In Genesis eleven, there's this. Um, there's one prominent story that marks this section, uh, a funny little story called the Tower of Babel. Um, And it's a reminder of the way things have gone wrong to this point. It's it's not a uh, a new expression of the disorder from from Genesis 3, but rather just a re-expression of it. Uh, We're not going to go through the entire story, but just as a way of setting up um, Genesis 12, I, I want to look at 11 verse 4. This is what's going on inside the heads and the hearts of the, of the folks at this time. They said, as a group, they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves, so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. And it's seemingly benign, right? There's, there's nothing in that that seems like overtly uh, wrong, necessarily. And yet, God responds by saying, no, this is not the way that we are going to do things. And in a very similar, like in basically identical grammar to what God says at the end of Genesis 3, like, oh, look what has happened now. God then says, if, if as one people speaking the same language, they've begun to do this, then nothing they plan is going to be impossible for them. God has the exact same response. So then what exactly was it that was the problem here? Well, there's a couple of things, and they hint at um, the threads of disorder that have already been at, at work in this story so far. First of all, come let, let us build ourselves a city. Not a bad thing to be city builders. It's a good thing. It's kind of cool to see a vocation working itself out, and just how powerful that a unified people under one language, under one common um, theme, uh, It's fascinating to see what they're already capable of, but the emphasis is not on 
you are made in the image of God so that you can go be a blessing to others. Instead, it's we're going to make for ourselves a name. Us as a unified people, we're going to um, we're going to build this spot, and it's going to be nice and comfy for us. With a tower that reaches to the heavens, becoming like God. Again, mankind reaching at, grasping at, trying to become like God when we know from the beginning chapter of Scripture that God has already made us like Him. We're always grasping at corrupted ways of trying to do so. So that we may make a name for ourselves, otherwise, we will be scattered. We like our tower that we've built and the comfort and the security that it provides. Being able to be here under one flag, one name, one language. But something should be triggering in our mind as we read this. What is the problem with the people not scattered? It runs at odds with what? The original mandate from Genesis 1. Be fruitful multiply, and build a tower for yourselves. Not so much. No. Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. Scattering is built into the program. That is God's design, and mankind is like, we could see it going that direction, and we feel a little more comfortable not doing that. And so God then responds in the same way that he responded to Adam and Eve, responded to the earth in its rebellion with the flood, and responds yet again here. But this initial chapter, Genesis 1 through 11, has, has told a recurring story of creation's resistance to the creator's ways, right? We'd rather do things uh, of our own volition. We'd rather do things on our own. We'd rather do things our way. And this being now the third go-around of this cycle, we would assume that God would throw in the towel, and yet we find anything but. Genesis 11 ends with the beginning of, of a family tree. We start to learn about... Terah's family, which is the family from which Abram comes. And we will not read. There's many gene genealogies here uh, in the last couple of chapters of this uh, section. We won't get into that. But there is a particular line that stands out, it sets the stage, be it maybe in an ominous tone. Uh, Genesis 11:30 says this. Now Sarai, who we've just learned is Abram's wife, now, Sarai was childless because she was not able to conceive. An interesting little note there. Abram, now old. Sarai, barren. God has scattered the folks after uh, the Tower of Babel, given them all a different language, sent them out to their own little corners of the world. And the narrative then hones in on this one particular family, one of those families that had been scattered, that had been sent out. 
the focus of the whole story turns to an old guy and his wife who has never born a child. And we're thinking, if this is the way that God is going to help them be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth, this is surely an odd place to begin. But isn't that the case with so much of Scripture? Isn't this an odd place? Isn't that an odd character? Isn't that an odd spot to begin? And yes, it turns out God, despite creation's resistance, what is beautiful about Genesis 12 is that we learn that despite creation's resistance, God still calls. Genesis 1 begins the operative thing that happens all throughout that chapter is that God speaks, God calls forth life, and then life happens. And humanity has gone to such great lengths to mess the thing up and to try to take things into our own hands. By the end of chapter 11, it's like, how is this ever going to get right? And yet we get to the beginning of the next chapter of this story, Genesis 12, 1, and we find what? The Lord said to Abraham, God is still calling. But instead of the broad call to Life, it's more specific now. It hones in on a specific person, a specific family. The Lord God, the Lord had said to Abram, go from your country, your people, your father's household to the land that I will show you. I want us to think this morning for a little bit about the nature of calling and its relationship to faith. Up to this point in Abram's life, you wouldn't have necessarily pegged him as the guy that God is going to use next, right? Abram old, Sarai barren, and it's a good, good reminder for us that the call of God on our lives may be surprising in light of our past. The call of God may be surprising in light of our past. Surprising or confounding to us doesn't quite add up. I've done, I've done this, I've done X, Y, and Z with my life, and yet God is calling me to A, B, and C. I've had this success in this area of my life, and it feels like God is calling me here. I've had this failure in this area of my life, and yet God is calling me there. I have this nagging pain in my life, and yet God is calling me in the middle of it. We go to great lengths sometimes to uh, create false disqualifications for ourselves. I, I, I can never fill in the blank for God because of fill in the blank. But this is the beauty of the story of grace throughout Scripture. This is the beauty at every turn that God looks at us in a way that we don't look at ourselves. He says, you are not the worst thing that you have ever done. You are also not the best thing that you have ever done. You are not past failure. You are are not past success. Instead, you are a beloved child and I am calling you image bearer to this particular kind of of life. The last thing we should be doing 
as followers of Jesus, is writing off a particular way that God can call us and use us just based on the way things have gone up to this point in our lives. There's, there's a number of instances in our, in our lives where we, where we find ourselves asking God why. Why did this happen? Why did you let me do this? Or why did this happen to me? And, and I want to be real clear that asking why is not a bad thing. It can actually come from a real posture of faith a lot of times. There's a whole book of the Bible that tells us that. It's Psalms. There's lots of whys that happen in the midst of the praises and the laments of Psalms. We can ask God why. We just can't let the why be the last question we ask. We got to keep leaning in and trusting that the situation is not the end, but that there is still a forward call of God in our lives. There is, after chapter 11, a 12-1. The Lord said to Abraham, go from your country. Your country, your people, and your father's household. While the call of God may be surprising in light of our past, the the call of God will certainly push us beyond our comfort zone in the present. That's the call here for Abram. All of the things that may tie, tie you down, all of the things that you may rely on, fall back on, find some measure of security. And I want you to leave those things behind your country, your people, and your father's household, to the land that I will show you, completely open-ended. Not leave these things that you already know and go to Corvallis. I can, I can, it may be a little bit weird to leave all the stuff, but I, can, I know how to get to where I'm going if the call is to Corvallis. No, it's open-ended. It's annoyingly open-ended, Right? Abram completely befuddled, I imagine. You know, it struck me this week how similar this passage sounds to what Jesus says in Luke 14. Um, Jesus was getting a little bit uh, more popular than uh, he wanted to be at this particular juncture. And... Um, I always like to impose a certain introversion on Jesus just because that's how I am and uh, assume that he's <clears throat> like me. Uh, but, but here's some evidence for it. I mean, one, you get, you get Jesus going up to the mountain to pray when all the crowds come to him. Like, I'm on board with that. And here we have the large, crowd, large crowds were traveling with Jesus and turning to them. So he's got large crowds, lots of people listening, and he says this. If anyone comes to me and does not hate Father, mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. That's a good crowd thinner, right? A <laughs> couple hundred people following, mobbing Jesus. Hey, you got to hate everybody if you're coming with me. And, and some people are like, hmm, interesting. I, I could, I, that's not the point. <laughs> And it's a little bit odd to us, right? It's a little bit odd language from Jesus. Like, 
every, everything else that we learn from the Gospels, from, from the whole thrust of Scripture, is like you care for your people, like you sacrifice on behalf of your people. And so it's obvious that the, the posture towards our, our family is not supposed to be one of, one of hatred. And actually, I think what is going on here is clarified by the very next thing that Jesus says. If something confusing happens to us as we're reading to, through the pages of Scripture, it's usually good to just read the next line or the next section or the next verse. Context is everything. It turns out what Jesus is saying is whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. And it struck me this week, I, I think that Jesus here is saying, unless you follow the Abraham way, you cannot be my disciple. You have to be willing to loosen the grip on the things that you will fall back on for comfort, for security, for all of that. You've got to be willing to loosen the stranglehold grip on those things if you want to be a genuine follower. And so Abram and ends up being this sort of model example um, in some ways for what it looks like to embody the life of faith. But the, the clearest part about that call is that it is going to involve a massive step outside of what is comfort, comfortable, what is known, what is secure. You want to follow the will of God, the call of God faithfully. You have to know that there is some discomfort coming. But that is not the only element here. Because the blessing of the call of God, the call of God may be surprising in light of our past. It's going to be uncomfortable in the present. But the blessing of the call of God will extend far beyond our limited frame in the future. It may not make sense to us based on where we've been. It may be um, frustrating right in the moment, but it is moving a direction that we couldn't possibly imagine. Listen, listen to this call. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse and all the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. That escalated kind of quickly, right? From I will bless you, Abram, singular, to all of the people on the earth are going to be blessed through you, through your faithfulness. We have no idea what, what the downstream effects will be of a simple step of faithfulness here in, in the present moment because God is orchestrating things in ways that we cannot possibly imagine. And sometimes, because we don't see the end goal, we don't see what God is ultimately doing with us and through us and for us. Sometimes because we can't see that, it prohibits us from taking that tiny step of, of, of obedience right here. Because right here, what feels more comfortable is the couch. What feels more comfortable is what I've always known. But this step by step 
by step. God is saying, I am going to make you a blessing to all. And at this point, our ears ought to be attuned to the fact that this is the exact same thing as being made in the image of God. This is Genesis 1 all over again. God is recreating. Now he's just recreating a specific people. We were made in God's image and then called to go be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. And this is God saying, I'm going to take this one into my own hands because they weren't quite getting it. They were trying to do this tower stuff. It wasn't very good. But God says, I'm going to bless you, you image bearers, so that you then can go be a blessing to the rest of the world. The dangerous part of, of comfort is that it, it turns our perspective so inward that we cannot always see the outward working. When we're comfortable, it's the silly things that, that make us upset. It's the, it's the little things that make us frustrated that when we take a step back in the grand scheme of our life, the grand scheme of what's happening in the world, it's like, why would anybody... Why would anybody actually care about that? But, but if I am just about my pleasure in this little tiny realm, then that thing does matter. It's a shift in perspective that God is calling us to. And Abram, he gives us a model for the life of faith. And wonderfully, for you and me, it is not a perfect model. It's not a particularly pretty story at some turns. But it is a model of faithfulness. A couple chapters over, when God is establishing his covenant with Abraham, we get this important commentary on, on who Abraham is and how Abraham is responding to this. Abraham has some questions before God, but Genesis 15, 6 says this, Abraham believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. <clears throat> he held on to those promises, even though there was no way that these star and that the, these descendants as numerous as the stars, there was no way that was going to happen because he hadn't even had one kid yet. How is that supposed to? Abram's like, I, I'm going to believe. I have some questions. I wonder how it's going to happen because as of right now, it's just this coworker that's going to be an error of mine. But Genesis 15 says that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And that stands in the middle of this passage. In chapter 12, we hear God's call towards Abram and the next verse just says, Abram went. He just went. He took a massive step of obedience and going where he did not know, he started taking the first step. That's Genesis 12. In Genesis 22, Abram takes the wild step of obedience and following God with his son Isaac. And sandwiched between those two incredible instances of obedience, we have this statement that Abram believed God. So Abram went. So Abram believed. So Abram fell upon the grace of God. Things didn't always stack up logically for Abram. 
but he learned to take one step at a time. If we were to go to Hebrews 11, we get really interesting commentary on this Abram figure, some of the most important um, words about him. Hebrews chapter 11, the great hall of faith. And who gets more real estate than anyone? But Abraham. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he didn't know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land. Like a stranger in a foreign country, he lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were the heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. <clears throat> Interesting that that contrasts with the Tower of Babel story, a city whose builder was man. I like that little note from the author of Hebrews. And by faith, even Sarah, who was past childbearing age, was enabled to bear children because she considered him faithful who made the promise. Not because stuff made sense, not because she saw the end goal, but just because she believed the one who called. And so from this one man, and he as good as dead, <laughs> I'm sure Abram has had some words with the author of Hebrew about that one. <laughs> you could have just said old. <clears throat> So from this one man, and he as good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sand on the seashore. The covenant promise came true. That which Abram could not see in the moment becomes the thing that he is willing to take steps towards. Abram is is a great reminder that faith is not a flawless following after God. Abram makes some real knuckleheaded mistakes in the story of Genesis. There's some really selfish things and some things that you and I could really relate with, some things out of self-preservation that, that would make sense. But when it comes to the call of God, we're not good choices. Abram was not a perfect follower and faith is not a flawless following after God. Instead, it is the resolve to continually turn our attention to God in every circumstance. The more I think about it, the more faith seems to me like a chosen perspective on life. A willingness to say, in this moment, God, I trust that you are doing something and I don't see it right now. But then being honest with that and bringing that to God and saying, God, I don't see it right now. And there's that, that particular spot is a, is a huge juncture, right? Because we could say, I don't see it right now and then go off and do our own thing. Or we can say, God, I don't see it right now, but I hear this call from you towards obedience, towards faith, towards a daily step towards you. And I am going to honor that call and trust that even though, I can't see what you are doing right now, that it is moving somewhere and that you are moving somewhere and that you are up to something bigger than I, I could possibly imagine. But when we conjure in our minds all these disqualifying attributes about ourselves or about 
another. And we say, I can't do that because of where I've been in my past or because of where I am. I can't see it in the future. When we, when we layer our lives, when that becomes the primary self-talk of who I'm not or who, yeah, who I can't be before God, we're, we're putting ourselves at odds with the kind of work that God wants to do in us. We should be so, so deeply encouraged that there is a Genesis 12.1, that there is a God calling to Abram. It was disorder and confusion and barrenness that marked the human condition by the end of Genesis 11. And into that moment, God says, all right, I've got something to work with. Let's go. Let's start anew. Nothing has changed about that. Nothing has changed about that God who is so unrelentingly patient with us, even annoyingly so sometimes, won't let us go, won't let us let a thing go sometimes. And that's bothersome. And that's exactly where God wants to work. I want us to just think about three questions for reflection as we as we close out today, as we think about this relationship between calling and faith. One, are you hung up on a part of your past while God is trying to call you in the present? I want to be real, real clear. By that, I do not mean that you don't have to process stuff from the past. We are all always processing something from the past, and we ought to be doing that uh, quite intentionally. That's not what I mean. What I mean is, have we let something from the past become a disqualifying measure in our minds when it is not to God? And do you know that God is actually deeply interested in that part of you? And that that very thing may be the place where he is interested in working the most. Have you put off limits something that God is saying, can we talk? This is so easy to do. Second, is there an area of life right now where you're more interested in comfort than in obedience to God? And this is probably the operative question, the most important question that an American Christian can be asking right now. Is there an area where it's just, it's easier to just be rather than seek out obedience? God is going to call you to some uncomfortable places. It's not that every single thing that God calls you to do uh, is going to be a difficult, like, burdensome thing. That is not the case. I went to Bible school for, for college, and there was, uh, there was something in the culture there where it was like, well, if God isn't calling you to the most difficult, most incredible, like, most, like, 
life-changing thing than right now, then, then you're not doing it right. It's like, no, that's not, that's not it at all. No. But we do have this over-fascination with just being at ease. And it, is that going to stand at odds with our ability to obey God? And finally, if faith is about taking a God-oriented perspective on life, what practice would help you make this shift, that, make that shift in perspective? The historic practices of the church are called the, the spiritual disciplines. Uh, you, you can't make a shift towards faith overnight. You can't. It, it, it's, it takes time. Faith takes practice. And, and as good as an idea might sound in your heart or in your mind right now, it turns out Monday morning is a, is a lot more difficult to execute on that idea. And we get tired by Tuesday and Wednesday. It's just like, is it the weekend already? But the disciplines bolster our spiritual lives. We're called to, at the very least, to at least to, to read and to pray and to read and to pray. Because if we do that in a regular and a consistent fashion, we, we, come, we come upon stories like Abraham and we see his faith in the midst of incredible circumstances. And we get little reminders. There's so many little things, so many little reminders in Scripture that could encourage us or challenge us, move us forward. And, we, and if we don't spend time, if we don't have a discipline of regularly encountering those things, we're going to, we're going to lose some of the grist for the mill. We're going to lose some of the power of this life, the discipline of just being here and together because a conversation with a brother and sister may be the very thing that you need just to get you through next, next week. How, what discipline, what, what practice, what habit would help bolster your life of faith right now? Because God is calling you to something. It may be confounding. It, it may be uncomfortable. Um, but it is coming for you. It is coming for us. No matter what. And that is God's grace towards us. Uh, band, why don't you come on up? Uh, we're going to sing. Uh, we're going to sing another song. Uh, our prayer team is going to be up here. If you feel something stirring, something that God has prompting you towards, maybe something God's working in you, um, we've got an awesome prayer team that you can, you can chat with. I'm around um, as well. Anybody on our staff, we would love to, to chat with you and to pray with you. It's good to take these things seriously. And sometimes, sometimes just like getting up and moving the body or just having a, a conversation with it, 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 creates this measure of accountability that we don't have when we just internalize it. God works internally for sure. But when we say it out loud to another, there's some power in that. So I, I encourage you, if God is moving in your heart at all, to say it out loud to somebody. Say it out loud. Let's pray. Father, um, we like the things that we like. And the things that we like sometimes... Uh, make us um, too comfortable for our own good. And so would you uh, unsettle us and get us moving in the direction that you are calling. 
and may you get us out of these thought patterns that, that make us think that we've done something or been someone who you can't use, who you don't who you aren't interested in. May, may you break through our thick skulls and our hard hearts to, and remind us that it is your goodness that is the truest thing about us, that it is your love towards us. That's the very reason you want to call us into big stuff. So may we just rest in that goodness for this moment. In Jesus' name, amen.